My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is the Technically Speaking Podcast. I sit down with BIPOC designers, entrepreneurs, and technologists. We discuss careers, triumphs, resilience, and the why behind their decisions. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to plug our Patreon. If you like what you're listening to and you want to support the podcast, for as low as $3, you can contribute monthly to help support the production of the show. You can contribute today by heading over to patreon.com slash technicallyspeakinghw. I'll also include the link in the show notes. Welcome back to another episode of Technically Speaking. My guest today is Keith Rich, Principal Designer at Think Company, coming to us live from Philly. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you. A pleasure to be here and glad you invited me to speak today. Yeah. Look, we're like, summer's kicking off. What's the vibe in Philly right now? Yeah. A lot of just coming off of the Memorial Day weekend. Pretty good. The weather's ever-changing, as we say right now. So, yeah, looking forward to 4th of July, Juneteenth, Father's Day's coming up, more holidays to come. Yeah. That's a busy little back-to-back thing. Is there... Yeah. Is there anything special about Philly this time of the year that you just absolutely love? That's a great question. It's funny. We're so close to Jersey and Ocean City and the beaches. So, you know, a lot of times we take that trip over and go to the beach a little bit. So I was just actually in Lewis, Delaware, because it's only two hour drive away. Also, then I'm going to New York this weekend. So that's another two hours. So the fact that we're like here, able to bounce around, but also still enjoy our stuff. That's a feeling as well. Yeah, I miss that about just living. I grew up in the Midwest, but even on the East Coast, just being able to hop in a car and get somewhere totally different is nice. I mean, it it takes a little bit longer in California and on the West Coast. I've been in that traffic. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that traffic. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, so one of the things I wanted to start the show off with was a few icebreakers, and I'll keep them as easy and light as possible, but feel free to expand on them, if you will. So. I'm going to give you like the stereotypical icebreaker here. Are you like team hoagie or team cheesesteak? Is there like a one versus the other? Like it's not really a contest. It's cheesesteak all the way. Oh yeah. Oh, that was easy. There was no hesitation for folks listening. No hesitation. I think when I said hoagie, you already had cheesesteak coming out of your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So what is something that you are currently obsessed with? I say it's just probably design system platforms. So mm-hmm. I sit in, in between the space of design and development. So anything that I can build design using real code with, and mm-hmm. one example of it is Interplay. That's great at pulling in React code and kind of being able to design with that. So that's where I'm like, all my attention is focused on that right now. How do we get that closer together? Yeah. Is this from like a documentation perspective? Maybe dive in that a little bit more. Yeah, it's a, definitely your documentation, getting on the same page, whether you're a designer, developer, topic strategist, product owner, anything. But really it gets down to like using the actual components. So of mm. course, when you're in Figma and Sketch and a lot of the design programs, you're almost building the replica. You're not really building the exact thing until you get to code and it's, oh yeah, people are using that thing. So when we can get to the point of designing with the thing that people will eventually use, that's efficiency and everything is saved. Uh, but also you're speaking the same language from the start there. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. I think one of the challenges that I have is we're going through a bit of a a code base change. Actually, our code base is pretty far behind, but our design system team is way ahead. And so for us being in this transitionary period, their expectations that 
the code is there and now that's where the conflict happens. So obviously this isn't anything unique to any development team, but I think to get to where you're at, I think is the true form of enlightenment when it comes to designs or at least the holy grail when it comes to design system. Feels very similar. Yeah. When you're in that space. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's no need to translate. Like we're all on the same page. All right, let's go. Let's now think about bigger problems beyond UI. Yeah. It must be gratifying to finally get to that point, right? Oh yeah. I had to look back and realize like, oh, yeah. how long have I been in this industry? Yeah, it's been 10 years now, which yeah. like, still blows my mind that it's been that long. But yeah. I was in advertising before for about six years and then switched over to, to UX and product design about five years ago now. Yeah. Wow. Can switch. Yeah. So for listeners that haven't done their research, you're really in the soccer and I have a couple questions here. This is a multi-pronged <laughs> question. How did you get into soccer? And then what's your favorite team or as they call in Europe, your favorite club? Yeah. Awesome. Great questions. Cause it started pretty early for me. I don't know that I had a choice. My parents were putting me in the, the leagues when I was three or four years old. So that's where at least the very early memories of it started. I definitely faded out cause I, I grew up in Baltimore and so soccer wasn't popular at all. It was basketball, football, baseball, yeah. those were the things you got into. And then fast forward, probably like 12 years later, Freddie Adu joined the MLS, the youngest player to ever join the yeah. professional league in the world. Yeah. I've seen a kid that was 14 play with grownups and professional. I was like, wait a minute. Let's... So I got back into soccer right around that time. And yeah, my favorite team is Arsenal over in London, basically because Thierry Henry at the time was just the best player and really just had that confidence and the style about his game that was like, yeah, I want to, I want to play like that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get a chance to see Thierry Henry when he was playing in the MLS? Yeah. So I went to the Red Bulls game. It was, I think it was Arsenal versus Red Bulls. Oh, wow. I'm sure he set that up because being in both the clubs. Yeah. I actually had a chance to watch them. It was fascinating. Nice. Yeah. I've gotten into soccer recently. So I have season tickets to the San Jose Earthquakes, but they are awful. <laughs> they got a nice but, stadium though. The stadium is like real, that whole like end of the sta- stadium is all a bar. It's like the longest bar. Yes. It's the longest. Yeah. It's the longest bar. I will say this, they're going through a tough time right now, but I think one of the things I appreciate is just how community based the organization is like being able to meet the players, being able to walk on the pitch has been really cool and a lot more affordable than anything right. that's basketball or football oriented out here. So definitely. Yeah. They had the all-star game there. I think maybe it was two years ago. Is that two, three years ago? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I think it was the last all-star game where they would bring in like the B-list all-stars from Europe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then COVID happened and yeah, everything. Exactly. Exactly. But it's great to see the excitement growing in the MLS for sure. So, okay. One last icebreaker. Okay. This is a little silly, but you know how they have like those entrance songs when you walk into the stadium, like if you're a wrestler or a baseball player, what would your song be? Jeez. This is a tough one, actually. All the music I'm listening to right now is not really pump up. It's like, the chill vibe chill. right now. So uh, I would have to say child band from Canada is three eyes child. Okay. But yeah, I think I'm just coming real smooth and, and mellow as opposed to what, you, but you got to describe, you got to describe this, yeah. right? People are listening. So how would you describe the music from child? I, they would describe it as synthetic soul. So it's, it's mm. it hits you right there and it's like nostalgia in audio song. Nostalgia though, but that's relative. So True. what nostalgia True. does that strike for you? Yeah. For me, it's just the carefreeness. So being able to mm. come out there, whatever you're doing, enjoying it in the moment and not really mm. too worried about anything else. I'm mm. being in the zone. Yeah. I love that. We need that right now for sure. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. 
So we'll wrap it up on the icebreakers. Appreciate you articulating all of that. And we yeah. get a, a little bit into what Keith enjoys outside of design and in design. But let's maybe start here. Tell us about Keith Rich. Who is Keith Rich? How did you get into design? And what were some of your influences? Yeah. So we talked about a little bit before, but the first thing I see, so my name is probably going to be soccer coming right after that really is like the thing that consumes my life the most, whether it's watching, playing, yeah, but mostly just being a fan, lover of the sport. That's universal. Wherever you go, someone has played soccer or knows what soccer is and there's different ways to explain it that way. But yeah, then when that merges with design and my creativity, I think that's where those two worlds collide of the creativity on the field, but also being able to come up with solutions for people there to and enjoy day day. Yeah. So how did you get into design? That's a great question. So it actually still revolves around soccer. There's an old school forum. I don't know if you remember those days where there were forums and yeah. post. Yeah, it was called soccer art. And mm. we had one computer drawing up in my parents' room. I would take all day long using Photoshop Express and putting together wallpapers, do our video editing, and really just going to town on that stuff. So it was all about the art of connecting soccer to art. And that's how I got started. Yeah. I have a very fond memory of playing, I think it was FIFA 99 on Windows. And I don't think I've necessarily shared this on the show, but one of the earliest kind of ways that I started designing was by cracking games and editing like different meshes and textures in it. And in the early days, there wasn't any real like player likeness. There wasn't really any sort of like kit designs. And so a lot of boxes, boxes, a lot of box. The fists were like boxes. And I remember just downloading this one. It was like a kit package. And it created like basically all of the Premier League jerseys back then. And I don't know, like for me, that was that was really awesome. But it took a lot of like programming. But Photoshop was a key element to that. A lot of it was through system prompts. I forget exactly how to do it. Like you would have to actually like unpackage like the files. Jeez. But that didn't matter back then because I was like pirating the games. I could always just re-download the package. It would just take two days. But yeah, I kind of miss some of the, there's some nostalgia tied to that too. Definitely. There's so, a soundtrack so, for it. Yeah, I was going to say, there's it? a soundtrack for every FIFA game. Oh. And so if you hear a song, you're like, oh, that was FIFA 2001. Oh, oh my gosh. Who was on yeah. the cover of the game? All that yeah. stuff. Yeah. I remember that game. That game, I think it had like Rockefeller Skank was the theme song of that one. And so every time I hear it, I'm like, oh yeah. my gosh, throwback. Yeah. We could nerd out on FIFA specifically for a long time. Sure. There's a lot of memories attached to it throughout my life. But yeah. So how did that sort of evolve into kind of moving into some of the agency work and where you're at today? Yeah. Speaking about being nerdy, there was a web page club in my high school. I don't know how many high schools have web page clubs. But oh, wow. Yeah. I, my first website was designing my high school's website, 800 mm. by 600 pixels. Oh, that was high res yeah. back then. And so yeah. from there, it was like, oh, you know, I can't only make art that people are just going to look at. I can make work art that people are going to use. And mm. we find around the web. So that was my first real introduction to interaction design or UX design, however you were, what I could call it back then. Yeah. But yeah, that was definitely the first time I was like, this could turn into something different agency work or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that like that agency work or what, that there was a, even a career in design or designing web pages at that point? At the time, I don't think I did. Because it, yeah, it was definitely more, I was coming at it from the angle of artistic expression. Yeah. So it was all about like 
mm. just putting stuff out there and seeing how people reacted. But yeah, right after school, they were talking about internships and getting yeah. jobs. And I was like, okay. Then I had that realization. I was like, am I an artist or am I a designer? Or both. Yeah. So I think I leaned into that design and this is all about communicating visually to people. Yeah. And that's all about how they interact and kind of perceive it versus how I would put it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such a, I feel like that's a conundrum for a lot of folks that started now. So I remember in college specifically, college was really interesting because I actually feel like I just never fit into the situations that I was in. Cause so I played football for a couple of years. And so as I was playing football, I was also getting into my studio art classes. And what happens is that you have to go to these things called study tables. And so study tables is where you have your classes in the morning, you might have your tutors and you practice for most of the afternoon, you eat dinner, and then you have to mandatory clock in around like 10, 12 hours a week with all the other athletes. <laughs> So most people are like working on their papers or their exercises and then I'm walking in with huge pieces of paper and then I'm drawing, right? Yeah. So I still remember like, people like, what are you doing? Yeah. But the flip side of that is like when I was in my studio art class, it's more specifically for like design or mixed media. Right. I had a very like digital mindset, right? Thinking about columns and typography and hierarchy. And so there was this interesting moment where I was like, Harrison, you're thinking about this too much. Your ideas are way too structured. You've got to let them flow. And I'm like, where, where am I right now? Did I choose the right path? I think that's really interesting. Was there a moment where it struck you of, yeah, maybe this design thing is kind of the way to go? Because I think emotionally, yeah, you might be tied to the sort of the freedom of expression around art, but you're a little bit more constrained specifically if you start thinking about doing client work, right? Yeah. Because there are requests, you got deadlines, and it may not necessarily end up the way that you envisioned it. Totally. Yeah. I think it was when I got a D plus on some of my artwork. And I was on the cusp of, you had to make a choice after, I think it was freshman year, whether you're going yeah. into fine arts or where you were going to visual communications. Mm. And at that point I was like, at first, I don't think I'm cut out for it. Art, art in the fine art way of thinking of it. Yeah. But also, yeah, I just like definitely leaned into the structure and trying to find that creativity within the structure, which is a difficult thing to do. Here at Technically Speaking, we're building a community from meetups to resources we want to create the space for everyone to find connections and work towards their goals. To do this, I need your help. For as low as $3 per month, you can become a patron contributing to meetups and production costs while unlocking exclusive swag and early access to episodes. Learn more or sign up now at patreon.com slash technically speaking HW. So one of the things that I loved, and I saw this on either your LinkedIn or your website, but you talk about your curiosity about the evolution of design. And I feel like some of the story kind of lends itself to that. Like, how would you define that? What has that evolution been to you, if you could describe it? Yeah, for me, it's just not getting really complacent or thinking that whatever's happening today is going to be the same thing in three or four months. So almost like building in expiration dates to software or anything that's out there and realizing like you can't really put all the eggs in one basket because tech just moves way too fast. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I'm always kind of looking at what that next thing is and ways to build efficiencies or just get to work that is like usually hard to think about and not leave them. Yeah. Just kind of getting that stuff out of the way, the basics to move on to a bigger problem. Yeah. Was there any sort of specific moment in which like that really clicked for you? Let's see. 
as far as like the be, being curious and kind of being, I think the, the evolution piece, right? There's a time component to it. And that may not necessarily lend itself from the work that you were doing from a pure arts perspective. So yeah, at what point did that sort of say, okay, look at this evolution or maybe things do need to change. Maybe we do need to reapproach. Like when did you start to get that mindset? That's a great question. Yeah. And I think it is probably, I want to say Twitter. And that's a, an interesting mm. way to put it, but it opened up the world to like, what other people are doing. Whereas mm -hmm. a lot of times in agencies, you're kind of stuck into ways of working within that company or that culture. And so when mm -hmm. you're looking at people and who, you know, they're designing on different levels of whether they're product work or in companies or the agencies, it's like they have a different approach and mm -hmm. they found a way to be efficient in that setting. Take some cues from here and there and wonder, oh, they're using mm -hmm. a different program. They're not just like thinking about it differently. They're different technology to get to the end goal. That's really fascinating. Did you feel that at the time, I'm going to go back into your mindset yeah. back then, right? Did yeah. you feel at the time that you felt roadblock? Did you feel that you had a block in terms of creativity because you weren't seeing people do certain things? I think it's really, it's interesting, right? I think there can definitely be a vacuum of thinking within an organization, right? Or at least directly with the peers that you're working with. And so was that something that you were going through at the time? Definitely. Yeah. I think when you feel that tension when you're working, that yeah. There has to be a better way. That's when I'm mm -hmm. like, all right, I need to go out there and see what that better way is and what people are, other ways that people are thinking about that problem. So yeah, I think you notice it right away when you're going through your days and you're like, this feels like it should be easier. We're in 2022. Yeah. Why are we still doing it in a certain way? Uh, it really is right. challenging the status quo on design and how the process kind of rolls out. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think another thing, and this is a great transition. I think another thing too is there's different ways of thinking, but also there are other people thinking about the same ways that things that you are, but perhaps in different ways. And it's like a funny story where this is going is I remember I wrote this article on something called object oriented design. And the idea is that basically when you're starting to look at your system and different data objects, if you will, there's certain sort of aspects of them, right? And you can really relate this to objects oriented programming, which is like my entry point into it because I did a lot of programming when I was younger. And so it's really funny. I wrote this, I actually wrote this up probably six, seven years ago. And I just felt that I didn't know what I was doing because no one else was talking about it. Or I don't know if you've ever been in like a situation where you're like, I don't know if these esteemed design people are going to think I know what I'm talking about. And so I finally posted it like maybe a year ago. And then I saw that there's like this whole training on object-oriented UX. And then obviously that's something that you've been thinking about as well. So I'd love to talk a little bit about, we've obviously talked to the fact that you've been thinking about design systems, platform, but I'd love to maybe dive into that a little bit more with you because I just find it very fascinating. I think when we start thinking about even just consumer to enterprise work, these are things that really help the user comprehend different things and can really be helpful for designers. So what exactly is object-oriented UX and how has that played a role in the things that you're doing on a day-to-day? -day? Yeah, definitely. I've got introduced to it way back when I was in advertising agency. A friend of mine sent me an article from Sophia Prater and yeah. she mentioned, this is how I thought about basically breaking down all the different pieces and parts of, of the experience that she was about to build. And so at the time I was in advertising, so we weren't really building complex applications mm. that wasn't as relevant to me then. But then I went to over to Think Company and definitely been working on a little bit bigger projects and things that have more complexity as far as how things are related to each other. And UX fits right in where it's 
at the research level, very basic. So you're like, how is someone going to think about entering your platform or your application? And so if you're able to say, oh, these are the core objects and then work your way down, you're almost visualizing the UI before you've even put into paper or and done anything in a design program. Yeah. What are some examples? Can you give me maybe an example of how this might be put into practice? Also, shout out to Sophia Prater. I was on her podcast, I think, last year. Maybe oh, late nice. last year. Time is in a warp right now. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You see a lot of posted notes. So that's definitely, I think, Sophia's logo. You got the four boxes of categorizing objects, nested objects, also the attributes of them. And then yeah. eventually, how is someone going to act on any of those objects? So really, it's getting in a room. But again, that's harder now in this remote setting. And a lot of people are doing it in Figma or Miro, basically mm. translating what was done on whiteboards into the digital space. So I think it's easy to do with clients because they can see it happening in the moment. Yeah. And a lot of times they're, if you're trying to explain it to them, they don't get it. But then when right. you're doing it, you're like, oh yeah, these are the things that make up the thing that I'm paying people just to create. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's something always to just being able to visualize things versus describing it. Yes. Or even just going hyper into some very complex systems mapping. You start noticing things are in groups and people really resonate to these different types of groups. And then when you add that to hierarchy, I mean, it all starts to make sense. This is obviously one of the things that you do. So, you know, you're a principal designer and what is that? Like, I just love to understand what is a principal designer? How does that play a role? And what are the things that you do on the day to day? And maybe what are your aspirations being in a role like this or beyond? It's a great question. We are definitely in a stage where we're like defining what that is to go. When I joined the company, there was no concept of principal designers. This is definitely something we're seeing in the industry and aligning ourselves to, but it's basically the next step after a senior individual contributor. So there's a path of going in design lead to management or there's principles are more focused on the craft, still leading projects, but maybe more so from a standpoint of being closer to the work. Whereas as a manager or as a leader, you're going to be more so looking at work from the highest level and not necessarily in the weeds. So yeah. at a basic level, that's what the principle design is. Yeah. Is that a conscious decision you make to stay on that path versus management? <laughs> hey, so there's a, a talk from the guy, Russ Mashmeyer, and he okay. explained it so well. I think that was the point where I decided for myself. And he mentioned, where do you feel energized at the end of the day? So uh, whatever you're doing, whether that's managing people, developing UIs, and being close to prototypes, and so at the end of the day, you're like, oh man, that was a rough day. I don't want to ever do that again. Yeah. That kind of directs you towards where you want to go. So I find joy in prototyping and being in the leads. And so that's what gives me energy. And I definitely want to stay in that direction. Yeah. Are there any sort of like key skill differentiators between that senior role and a principal that, you know, have played an important part of your sort of success? Yeah, it's definitely. I think you have some of the trust of the company to be able to direct the path, whether that's through frameworks or really just on projects in particular, yeah. crafting that, whether it's the design system language, finding your niche on that project. So for me, it is definitely like bridging the gap between design and development and design systems. So as a principal designer focused on visual, that's where I like to find my focus area, whether it's on a project, but also growing that expertise at the company level. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get back to the design systems work that you're doing because you're working really closely with developers. Oh yeah. What does that relationship look like? Because I think a lot of times we talk about like the execution. I don't think we talk a lot about like the output and the partnership that requires. If you could maybe talk us through how you started to develop that relationship 
And like, where have you provided the value and where have engineers provided you value in this process as you're working through it? Yeah, definitely. I think for me, because I had a little bit of knowledge and have been able to code some websites myself, I think that lends all the credence to you trying to understand the language of development and then vice versa. Can developers yeah. understand the language of design? And so there's definitely many ways to go about that. But I think the main thing is just having a basic understanding of how each of those disciplines work. And then yeah. from there, it's just really showing the work as, as often and as early as you can. A lot of times, I think as designers, we get like stuck in the idea that it's got to be perfect before we share it. And when you're opening that up, Figma does a great job of this. Anyone can come in, as long as you give them a link, of course, and see what you're working on at any time. And there's no more restrictions of, all right, I got to wait for the designer to give me yeah. this before I know what I'm doing. The earlier, the better for everyone to kind of see what each other's doing, I think. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So look, we're getting to the top of the show. Oh, right. No, this is great. How about this? Is there any sort of advice that you would leave for the listeners? I want to say just expand. It's hard to say this, but like I, for so long earlier in my career, I was very naive. And I mean, we still have all like degrees of naivety in us, but I think now I'm realizing how naive I am. So I can be able to adjust to that. If you think about Dave Thomas was on your show, I think last year and his all, he's all about talking about bias as far as like how that informs the decisions that we make, but also how we design too. The fact that you can understand that there's millions of biases out there that are impacting what you do every day. That's definitely mm. something to, to focus on and say, okay, I made this decision, but was it based on research or based on something that I was feeling like this is the right solution? So yeah. detaching yourself from the work a little bit and really realizing, oh yeah, I'm creating this, but it's not me. Like at the end of the day, no one knows I created it. Yeah. Just kind of putting it out into the world. Hmm. I love that. I love that. How can folks follow you, get in touch with you? Where is Keith at on the internet? Yeah, mainly on Twitter. I've purged Instagram and Facebook at this point. I watched the documentary Social Dilemma. And hmm. I was like, man, that is some intense reporting there. So mostly on Twitter, Keith underscore Rich. Yeah, it's a main place. Tweeting about soccer. Soccer, <laughs> mostly soccer. So if you don't like it, don't follow. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Keith, thank you so much for coming on the show and looking forward to seeing your progress on all the amazing work that you're doing. And I'm sure we'll have some further conversations about soccer in the future. Definitely. Thanks, Harrison. That concludes the show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge way to show your support and it really helps us reach more people and grow our following. By the way, we release a new episode every two weeks, but in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube at Technically Speaking HW. Again, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. This has been a production of Technically Speaking Media.